you know, data for data's sake, just collecting data and taking a great big shovel and shoveling it into a computer and turning a great big crank and coming out with marvelous results and then thinking that this is reality is a dangerous game. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Marcella Cavallero, Esri Manager of National Government Emerging Business, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard Jeffrey West, author of the book Scale and a theoretical physicist, emphasize a wise approach to data as businesses and cities adopt data-driven decision-making to drive sustainable growth. Today, many businesses and cities use sophisticated analytics to make sense of overwhelming volumes of data generated from sensors in the connected economy. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigate the surprising things data tells us about companies and cities. Jeffrey, thank you for being here with us. Can we start with you describing to our listeners the key findings of your research as it relates to the fundamentals of growth? Well, of course, growth completely pervades nature. And, uh, you know, the main thrust of the work that I did on growth was to take a theory that understood some uh, fundamental principles underlying complex systems and derive an equation, a sort of generic or basically universal equation for how a complex system increases in size as it ages. And that means that you have a formula which tells you how any organism scales. So much so that then the theory tells you that um, if you look at it through a scaling lens, everything grows in the same way. So something small grows in the same way as something very large, following exactly the same mathematical equation. Uh, your research indicates that systems self-optimize to deliver efficiencies and economies of scale. What are some of the underlying factors that contribute to this phenomenon in cities and in businesses? The thing that drives cities, things that really is fundamental to cities are people. This is often forgotten because we usually think of cities in terms of their physicality. Urban planning, urban geography, urban economics tends to think of cities as a bunch of buildings and roads and an economy flowing in it and so on, somehow forgetting that actually it's all those people and that's the whole point of a city. There's no point in having any of these buildings and all this other stuff around if it weren't for the people. And in fact, in the work that we have developed, it's the other way around. It's the people and their interaction, namely social interaction, social networks that determine the structure of the city. And that's the networks that dominate the growth and evolution of a city. But the structure of these networks have one characteristic that is different and critically important difference than biology. You know, when you think of the interaction between people, you know, I talk to you, you talk to someone else, and he or she talks to another person, they talk back to me. And so there's this conversation that goes on and we have this kind of positive feedback. You know, it could be something mundane like discussing a football match, but it could be something very profound. Whatever it is, there's this conversation that has positive feedback in it. So what that leads to is instead of what happens in biological networks, which is dominated by economy of scale, meaning the bigger you are, the less per capita, the positive feedback mechanism inherent 
in social networks and social interaction leads to the opposite kind of phenomenon, that is, the bigger the city, the more per capita. So the bigger the city, the more social interaction per capita. That leads to the bigger you are, the higher the wages per capita, the more patents produced by the city per capita, the more number of AIDS cases per capita, the more number of flu cases per capita, the more murders per capita, uh, the more restaurants per capita. But anything that is derivable and has its origin in social interaction gets increased all to the same, this is what's amazing, all to the same degree, namely an added 15%, roughly speaking. That's kind of extraordinary, and uh, the data shows that, and it's true across m multiple metrics across uh, the globe in different urban systems uh, where data is available. Why would businesses, which are also made up of networks, seize growth? Yes. So cities scale superlinearly, and that gives rise to open-ended growth, and they don't die, I mean, roughly speaking. Now, companies, it turns out, when you look at the data, scale sublinearly, like we do. That says two things. Growth ceases, companies eventually stop growing, and they die. So let me just modify that a little bit. If you just plot the growth curves of companies, and by the way, the data part of this is based on all 30-odd thousand US publicly traded companies since 1950. So if you plot the data of these companies, uh, it's, it's sort of beautiful. It's a beautiful kind of spaghetti graph. And what you see is, you know, what you know, that young companies zoom up and they're growing in this classic hockey stick fashion. But all these old companies have bent over and have stopped growing. Actually, if you look at the data carefully, they haven't quite stopped growing. They're just sort of very slowly still increasing. However, if you um, factor out the rise in the stock market or the GDP, you just renormalize them to the GDP, they're all dead flat. It's amazing. I mean, there's, you know, they go up and down a little bit, but they're dead flat, which is in agreement with this idea. They stop growing. And of course, that's one reason companies are so vulnerable. Uh, they're just sort of sitting on top of the <laughs> uh, the GDP, they're, they're, you know, on top of the waves. And if a big wave comes along, mainly there's a big fluctuation in the stock market, they can go under and they drown. Um, if you look at this data, and you're quite a sophisticated statistical analysis on it, called survivability analysis, you discover that the half-life of a publicly traded U.S. company, roughly speaking, is about 10 years. So even though, you know, it's already on the stock market and gone public, half of those companies are going to be dead in 10 years, or dead meaning disappear. Dead here meaning they no longer post sales. They, they may still sort of exist because they've merged or been uh, bought up. Um, uh, but uh, it turns out when you look at the data, you can't tell the difference in the data between those that have liquidated and gone bankrupt and those that have merged or been acquired. And indeed, I think the dynamics is not so different between those two. So um, they do, and the data su strongly suggests that all companies will eventually disappear. One editorial comment I would make 
is that we shouldn't care about companies dying. What we care about is the people and the ideas. We want the people to thrive and the ideas to blossom and so on. And if a company is getting in the way, get them out of there and let new blossoms bloom. And that's what our system has been so successful at. You know, it's a bit simplistic, but uh, that's the idea. In the same way, I have to get out of the way soon, and I will, so that, you know, others come along and fill the void and new things happen. That's what evolution and natural selection is. And it's been unbelievably successful in terms of life. And it's been in an incredibly short period of time, superbly successful in terms of the free market system and entrepreneurship. So if you're in industry and you promote the idea of the private sector, then one of the things you also have to promote is uh, not trying to, to save companies. And, and here's the point. There's a fundamental difference between cities and companies, even though they're both social network systems. Some of it is to do what they're there for. Cities are there to facilitate social interaction and create ideas, innovate, to um, create wealth and so on. Companies are there maybe to do some of those things, but uh, some people may disagree with this. At some fundamental level, they're to make profit. They can't exist without making a profit. And that's a fundamental uh, driver, I think. Um, That's the first point. But uh, in terms of their um, life history and evolution, they're also fundamentally different. Because if you think of the beginnings of a company, and now I'm going to make a sort of cartoon version. So it's a bunch of people get together, maybe there's one, but eventually a few people get together, they have ideas, lots of ideas usually. And maybe part of those ideas are an array of products. And then eventually, you know, the company forms and it starts producing whatever it is as the product. And of course, it has to respond to the market forces. And whatever that product space is, it tends to shrink. You know, the one or two or three or whatever it is, products that are highly successful get reinforced. And there's that positive feedback mechanism, which means the others tend to disappear and so forth. So the company grows on this and it can be highly successful with this, this, this now narrower spectrum of products. But eventually, of course, it grows big enough that it has to start taking itself seriously, meaning it has to form more and more a formalized administration and bureaucracy. It has to make sure that the floors are swept, there's a parking lot, the taxes are paid, the rules are obeyed, and whatever. And this thing, you know, as the company gets bigger and bigger, typically that has to get bigger and bigger. And as that happens, more and more, the more innovative part necessarily becomes a smaller proportion of the action in the company. So much so that some companies almost look like it's all bureaucracy, and I've been in such companies. And, you know, and you can understand that because, you know, many companies, it depends a little bit on the sector, um, there's all kinds of federal and state and local regulations and laws that have to be obeyed. And in addition to those, the company imposes upon itself all kinds of laws and regulations and so on that have to be obeyed, and they tend to overdo it. I mean, that's an editorial comment, but they have to do that. And um, 
So what happens is the company more and more becomes more rigid, more ossified, and uh, less agile, and less innovative. That's typical. And most importantly, its dimensionality shrinks from being sort of more multidimensional. It becomes more and more heading towards being unidimensional, effectively. This means, uh, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's metaphorical from ecology, that uh, when you reduce diversity, you necessarily become less resilient for obvious reasons. You don't have, you know, if the, if, if the externalities change, you're not there to deal with them, and a competitor may be. And, uh, you know, that's the classic problem. Of a, of a company and eventually it can't keep its hold on the market and either has to sell out or it goes bust. So that's or hopefully a, reinvent itself. So hopefully in time, it, uh, before any of this happens, uh, the leadership reinvents itself, uh, re realizes what's happening and starts to think already ahead of things that may seem crazy at the time and brings up uh, new ideas, new divisions, new pro potential products, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, occasionally in a small minority of cases, that happens. Obviously in a small minority, since almost all of them die. So the, the data speaks for itself. So this is, and here's the important point, this is a complete contrast to cities. Cities go extraordinarily from being lower dimensional as they're small to more and more multidimensional, more and more diverse, greater diversity in the city. Is that why rural communities um, are more vulnerable? Because they're sort of more focused on particular types yes. of industries and don't very have that often. diversity? Yes, very often. They don't have the diversity so that if things significantly change, as they have, you know, they relied on uh, agriculture or mining or, uh, you know, things of that nature, or even sometimes small towns or small villages on, um, you know, old-fashioned industries. And when they disappear, um, they're in trouble. And, of course, you know, one of the myths projected in the last election, right, was that, you know, 98% of America is in this position, or whatever, I mean, I'm being silly, but, you know, some huge percentage of people are in this position, whereas, in fact, it's quite small. But, um, but in fact, that is an issue, and it's a very serious issue, but it is, you're more vulnerable the smaller you are, typically because you're less diverse, you have, uh, you know, you can't easily move. And so those small towns and villages are much more in that sense like companies than they are like you know big cities and so that's a, it's, it's sort of interesting i want to talk to you a little bit about your uh personal experience on working with data and you conclude it in your new book you mentioned that data for data's sake is dangerous could you talk about that sure yeah yeah so you know um Data, big data, is, is sort of the lifeblood of science. The more data, the better. Marvelous. We want it all, as much as we can get. But, you know, what I meant by that, you know, data for data's sake, just collecting data and taking a great big shovel and shoveling it into a computer and turning a great big crank 
and coming out with marvelous results and then thinking that this is reality is a dangerous game. Sometimes it's correct. Depends obviously on the algorithms. And now uh, we've got a, you know, another, a new buzz word that's been around a long time actually, artificial intelligence and machine learning, etc. And these are sort of magic bullets that people in various fields and many industries think is, you know, this is going to solve everything and predict everything. Well, many things it will do exactly that. And I think, uh, you know, there are many situations where that may well be appropriate. But in many instances, it's a dangerous because big data without a conceptual framework, without having some understanding of mechanism, I think is, uh, will lead to all kinds of misinterpretations of what the outputs are of these kinds of uh, algorithmic uh, manipulations. And, uh, you know, AI is sort of, and machine learning is sort of based on the idea that, uh, you know, correlation is causation, that, uh, and we can just sort of blindly go ahead and let the computer spew it all out. You know, unless you have some framework to put that in, something that's more analytic, and as I say, more truly mechanistic and causal, I think you are liable to uh, horrible unintended consequences. You know, there's a great example, I discuss it in my book. In 2000, London decided that they should put a footbridge for the first time across the River Thames, the Millennial Bridge in London. So here's what happened. On opening day, the bloody bridge started swaying <laughs> and they had to close it on the first day. And they spent a year and a half and another trillion million dollars to fix it. Now, that bridge was designed by maybe, you know, an outstanding architect with one of the best engineering companies. What did they do? Of course, they had all these computer programs. They feed it all in, turn a crank. I mean, I'm being, I'm simplifying. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and out came, you know, these results. I said, this is how you do the engineering and so on, and it looks beautiful and so on. But it really did screw it up. Now, in my book, I tell the story that there's a, a very good um, mathematical physicist who likes to work on such issues named Stephen Strogatz at Cornell, who, when he heard about it, quickly sat down and did just the mathematics. No computer programs, nothing. He had a understood, instead of just relying on, you know, whatever's built into the program, he started from scratch and worked it out and said, of course, it's going to sway all over the place. And the problem is, the way they had designed it was if you march, the oscillations don't go up and down, they go this way. Left and right. Left and, yeah, horizontally, not vertically. So they said, oh, you know, this is a new engineering thing, which we didn't realize. Well, that's because they weren't behaving like good engineers. Good engineer would have done what Strogatz did. So there's a sort of example. Right. You know, and they had tons of, I mean, talk about big data, my God. They had so much data. So that's, you have to be careful. Um, and you have to, you know, it's just, it's, it's, that's a cautionary tale. And I think we have to be extremely cautious of just naively plunging ahead, relying on, you know, uh, huge amounts of data coming in. Um, and, and by the way, there's another piece to it. And that is this. So the philosophy there is 
the extreme philosophy is that the data speaks for itself. In fact, the extreme version is we don't need science anymore. It does it itself. We don't need Newton's laws and quantum mechanics and all that. Data does it. Well, it's kind of nuts, put it mildly, I think. It's extremely important that uh, we integrate big data. We need big data. We need smart cities, smart health, all these things. We, we need them. But we need to integrate them with sort of the more traditional way of doing science, uh, using mathematical modeling, mathematical theories, trying to understand the principles. What are the underlying principles of the system? I think it's, um, it, it's really um, some arrogance of computer scientists that have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves. I mean, yes. I'm, I respect everything they do, but it's, they need to, that's all. So it was more a cautionary statement. It makes sense. In science, I guess it's called first principles. In yes, business, exactly. it's called common sense. Okay, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Jeffrey, thank you so much for sure. your time. It's been fascinating. Sure, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Jeffrey West for sharing what he has learned about smart approaches to growth, thriving, and transformation when it comes to businesses and cities. To learn more, download our ebook, Making Sense of Digital Transformation, at esri.com forward slash wear. To keep current with new interviews, visit our podcast page at esri.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>